Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, Mercy Commons. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm one of the leaders in our community. Uh, About 15 years ago, I was working as a newspaper reporter, uh, and I ended up with a really bizarre story. Uh, I went into the newsroom one morning and my editor handed me a post-it note that had a name and an address on it. And she said, so this guy got busted last night for digging for treasure in his yard. Can you go check it out? So I drive down to this little cul-de-sac in Montclair and out in front of this house, there's an enormous mountain of dirt. And surrounding it is this temporary chain link fence with a big red warning sign on it. So I go, okay, this is odd. I walk up to the front door and and knock, and this really nice man comes out, and and he proceeds to tell me the story of what happened. So it turns out he had gone online, and he had come across this high-powered metal detector that was specifically designed to find deeply buried hordes of gold. So he orders it, it arrives, he goes out to his backyard, fires it up, nothing. But then he brings it out to his front yard and it starts going crazy. So he grabs a shovel and he starts digging and digging. And eventually the hole gets so big for him that he can't go anymore. So he goes down to Home Depot and he hires a couple of day laborers to come back home with him. One of them goes down into this hole with a ladder and a shovel and starts hacking away at the bottom. And the other has this, uh, the, this bucket and pulley system that he uses to, to get the dirt out of the hole. They dig for an entire day and they don't find anything. So they come back the next day. And then the next day after that, for two entire weeks, they dig down further and further into the earth, convinced that the next strike of the shovel is going to lead them to glorious wealth. Well, finally, a concerned neighbor calls the city and the fire department shows up to investigate and they are shocked at what they find. The hole stretches 60 feet down into the ground. That's like 10 people stacked on top of each other. It's enormous. So. Standing next to the hole uh, with this guy, I I turn to him and and I ask him the obvious question. Like, what made you keep going? Like, (laughs) weren't you concerned that this was getting a little bit out of hand? And I'll never forget what he said to me. Uh, He was a little bit embarrassed and a little bit defensive, um, but he says, well, I mean, it kept beeping, so we kept digging. I mean, I think that's just a normal human reaction when you think there might be gold down there. In other words, with all he stood to gain, why wouldn't he get carried away? Why wouldn't he go to great lengths when faced with the promise of glorious wealth? This morning, we're continuing our series on the book of Colossians. And in today's passage, Paul explains why he is willing to go to such great lengths in his ministry. Why is is he willing to travel the world and to face persecution and to break ethnic taboos, and to do all these other things that don't make any sense. The answer, he says, is that there's a treasure at stake. Uh, Paul says that the gospel is like mysterious treasure that has been hidden for generations and has now been revealed. 
the message of Jesus is like glorious wealth that's available to everybody. And, and Paul's mission, his commission from God is to share that wealth with as many people as he can. And so this morning, we're going to look at Paul's message, which he summarizes as Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we're going to look at Paul's example. And the truth that I want us to see is a simple one, but it's a challenging one. Uh, and it's this. When Christ is in you, life isn't about you. When Christ is in you, life isn't about you. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Writing from prison, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. At the center of this passage, Paul summarizes his core message with seven words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Nick shared last week in the previous section of Colossians, Paul includes this rich hymn about the supremacy of Jesus. He says that Jesus is the Lord and the creator of the entire universe. Jesus is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made. And it's because of Jesus's ministry on earth and his uh, death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his victory over evil that we're able to experience redemption. Jesus has made it possible for those who trust in him to move from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And, and in this passage, Paul expands on this mystery. Uh, he says that Jesus, who, is, who has come as the Jewish Messiah, hasn't just come for the Jewish people, but that he's come for the Gentiles as well. He is in you Gentiles, Paul says, meaning that he's in and among the Gentile communities. But he's also in you in the sense that he is indwelling individual believers. So the Lord of the entire universe now makes his home inside of us by his Holy Spirit. That is, that's the glorious wealth that drives Paul. That's the message of Christ in you. And as we're going to see in this passage, it's clear from Paul's teaching and from his example that when Christ is in you, life isn't about you. We're going to see that show up in three different ways uh, in this passage. First, we'll see that when Christ is in you, you don't live for your own comfort. Paul opens the passage with the statement, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. We know that from the moment that Paul got knocked to the ground by Jesus on the road to Damascus, that his life was characterized by suffering. Uh, in fact, just right after his conversion, Jesus appears in a vision in Acts 9, and he says, this man is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
And from that point onward, it doesn't take Paul long to start running into people who don't like him and don't like what he has to say. Uh, he, he faces opposition pretty soon, usually from people who uh, are, are pretty happy to resort to violence. And so in his two letters to the Corinthians, Paul has a couple of stretches where he just rattles off all the suffering that he experiences for the sake of the gospel. He says he has become a spectacle to the world. He has been dishonored. He's been hungry and thirsty and homeless. He's been abused and insulted and harassed and slandered. He's become the scum of the earth. He's been put in prison. He's been lashed with whips. He's been beaten with rods. He's been attacked with stones. He's been shipwrecked and robbed and left out in the cold with nothing to eat and nothing to wear. That all sounds pretty miserable. Uh, I think if I ran into a person like that, I would expect them to be bitter and angry about everything. But Paul, writing from this prison cell to the Colossian church, he's somehow able to say, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I'm happy to be suffering for you. I celebrate my suffering for your sake. How is he able to say that? Well, Paul, Paul tries to answer that in verse 24 by saying that his suffering is helping to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the church. Now, that's a tricky phrase. That almost sounds heretical when you first hear it. Like, what could possibly be lacking from Christ's affliction? Well, we know from Scripture that Jesus' death on the cross was the once and for all sacrifice that's completely sufficient for our salvation. There's nothing that can be added to it. But what's lacking from it is that people haven't experienced it or witnessed it. And so what Paul is doing through his suffering is helping to extend that message to others and to model that self-sacrificial love um, that Jesus demonstrated on the cross as Paul spreads the gospel. I like what John Piper says here. He says, Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. Our willingness to endure hardship for the good of others is a filling up of Christ's afflictions because it extends them to others and makes them visible. So just like Jesus was able to endure the cross because of the joy set before him, like Hebrews said, Paul is able to endure suffering because of the joy before him of making the riches of the gospel known to other people. Now, it's important to know here that Paul is talking specifically about suffering for the sake of the gospel. Um, I know a lot of you know what suffering feels like physically and emotionally, uh, relationally. Uh, but what Paul is talking about here specifically is suffering that, that happens as a result of following Jesus. We know that throughout history and in other parts of the world, um, Christians have faced persecution and imprisonment and, and even death for following Jesus. Uh, and thankfully for us in our context, we're not nearly as likely to face actual suffering for the sake of the gospel. But I think the main thing that, that we face, the question that we have to wrestle with, is are we willing to joyfully embrace discomfort for the sake of the gospel? When Christ is in us, we don't live for our own comfort. Um, so, so what kinds of discomfort might God be inviting you to joyfully embrace? Maybe it's, it's intentionally living with less, um, cutting 
some of the comforts out of your budget and making more margins so that you're able to, to financially care for those who are in need. Maybe it's giving of your, of your time and your energy to, to serve and to care for others, even when it's not convenient, even on Saturdays, even at the end of a long work day. Maybe it's staying in a job or in a place when you would rather go. Or maybe it's, it's going from a job or a place uh, when you would rather stay. Or maybe it's being willing to initiate awkward conversations with friends or, or with neighbors, even when you're worried about facing rejection or getting shut down. Um, I was inspired by a couple in the church a couple of weeks ago who had a, a comedically awkward dinner with some neighbors of theirs. Uh, there were some uh, cringeworthy moments, but they were telling us about it with joy uh, because it was the first step in being able to, to spread the wealth of the gospel to these people. Where is it that God wants you to embrace discomfort? The second thing that we see in this passage is that when Christ is in you, you don't follow your own path. So we've seen that Paul's core message is Christ in you, but, but Paul's core goal is to produce mature disciples. Paul wasn't interested in just making converts to Christianity, people who uh, accept the message of salvation, but then just kind of continue on in their own lives with a, a sheen of morality in there. Paul wanted to make authentic disciples who are apprenticed to Jesus. He says in verse 28, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In Greek, that word mature is teleon, uh, and it carries with it this, this meaning of being complete or of reaching a goal or arriving at a destination. And so you can picture a road with maturity at the end of it. And it's like Paul is saying, come with me, join me in this journey. I want to help you get from here to there. And part of how he does that, he says, is by teaching them and warning them. So he's, he's teaching them about who Jesus is and what life in Christ is meant to look like. And then he's warning them about the threat of false teachings creeping into their church and against the threat of, of sinful behavior that may deter them and derail them from this path to maturity. He's teaching and he's warning. He's concerned with, with right belief and right behavior. And those are two elements of, of a mature disciple. Dallas Willard says that spiritual maturity is effortlessly doing what Jesus would do if he were living your life. Spiritual maturity is effortlessly doing what Jesus would do if he were living your life. It's about being so connected to Jesus through our, our relationship with him, our knowledge of him, through our habits and through our spiritual disciplines that the character of Jesus just flows out of us. Now, I'm not there yet, but that's what Paul wants people to experience. That is the purpose behind his teaching and his warning. And it's interesting, Paul uses that same teaching and warning phrase later on in the letter to the Colossians when he's giving instructions to the entire church. He says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and warning one another in all wisdom. Here we see that spiritual maturity is a team sport, 
Uh, being a disciple isn't something that we can do all on our own. It takes all of us together to disciple one another toward maturity. Uh, I've been reading a book recently on the brain science behind spiritual maturity. Uh, it's written by a, a friend of Dallas Willard. And, and in it, he says that neuroscience supports this idea that the spiritual disciplines are really important, but, but spiritual maturity, what really drives it is having a sense of loving attachment with God, uh, a clear understanding and awareness of that presence of Christ in you, and uh, a, a sense of loving attachment with a community of God's people uh, where we experience spiritual role models together. So when Christ is in us, we don't follow our own path. Uh, we're not lone rangers who are kind of living out our own truth. Instead, we come together as a community of Jesus followers who are on the road to maturity together in relationship with Jesus and in relationship with one another. And the third thing that we see in this passage is that when Christ is in you, you don't rely on your own power. Paul concludes this passage in verse 29 by saying, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. So to be clear, Paul says that he works hard. The words that he uses for, for labor and for striving are, are used of someone who works to the point of exhaustion or an athlete who is using every muscle to strain toward a goal. Paul works with all of his might, he says but he acknowledges that his might isn't enough. That's how he depicts the, the work that he's doing for the gospel. Uh, it, it's Jesus' his strength, he says, that's at work within him. It's Christ in him, giving him the power and the grace to keep going. Uh, when my girls were smaller, we used to have this little pink radio flyer uh, tricycle that had the little pedals and the little handlebar, uh, but sticking up from the back of it was a much bigger handlebar that I could push and that I could steer it with. So we used to go for walks through the neighborhood and their feet would be just kind of like tornadoing around in circles going as fast as they could. But when we would hit a hill that was too steep or when we would hit a, a turn that was too tight or when they just got too tired, I was right there behind them, pushing them forward, helping them to navigate the turns. And it's that kind of off-balance partnership that we should have in view of the work that God calls us to do with him. We can't do it on our own. We, we need God. We need Jesus. We need Christ in us, uh, empowering us to do the things that he has called us to do. It's Christ who equips us and empowers us and strengthens us and sustains us. Here's one way that I've seen that at work in my own life. Uh, I used to be deathly afraid of public speaking. I was mortified of it. I know that public speaking is a fear for a lot of people, but uh, yeah, it was bad for me. I remember a couple of times in college, like skipping classes where I was supposed to, to make a presentation just because I was so anxious about having to stand up in front of people and talk for an extended period of time. So when Nick first asked me to preach maybe 10 years ago, I remember thinking, there is no way that I will ever preach. Well, God over time matured me and stretched me and brought opportunities uh, into my life. He led me to seminary. And about seven years ago, Nick asked me again. And this time I said yes. Um, I had a sense that God wanted to do something 
in me. He wanted to teach me a lesson about dependence upon him and upon his power. So for that first sermon, I worked really hard. I prepared, I studied, uh, but most of all, I prayed that, that God would give me the courage and the confidence to do what it was that he had called me to do. And so I delivered that first sermon and nobody died. I didn't faint. In fact, I felt pretty good afterwards. But, but more than anything, I felt a deeper sense of faith and trust and confidence in the faithfulness and the dependability of God. I learned a lesson that he is the one who empowers us to do the things that he calls us to do. So that's an example from preaching, but it's true for us in anything that God calls us to do, any work or ministry or job that he's called you to do. If we're, if we're serving out of our own energy or, or power or intelligence or charisma, that's a recipe for, for burnout and for failure. It's only as we learn to rely on the empowering presence of the spirit inside of us that, that we can be fruitful. Um, I know we, we comment a lot about the, uh, the eye chart on the wall behind me here in Nick's home. Uh, if you were to go into my home, into my living room, what you would see on the wall is a print of John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those words are a much needed reminder for me. I sit on my couch and look up at them often. Uh, I need that reminder that, that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing of value. Uh, it's, it's only as I'm abiding in him and as I'm experiencing his abiding presence in me that I can accomplish anything of worth. So Mercy Commons, that's the reminder that I wanna leave with you this morning. Jesus invites you to abide in him and, and he wants to abide in you. Jesus wants to make the glorious wealth of his presence known to you as you abide in him. And unlike my friend at the beginning who, who dug and dug aimlessly for, for glorious wealth, um, we have the assurance that that wealth is there, that it's offered freely to us. We can experience the hope of glory. It's not a, a hope that's far off and distant, uh, but it's a hope that we have assurance of. And so this week, I just encourage you to make time to dwell on that mystery of Christ in you and know that because Christ is in you, we can live for his kingdom instead of our comfort. Uh, because Christ is in us, we can grow into maturity instead of following our own path. And because Christ is in us, we can be empowered by his strength rather than rely on our own power. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.